one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Uh, packed agenda today, as usual. Uh, an interesting article in the Financial Times about the housing market, and particularly the rental market globally. A lot going on in China. And indeed, that has reverberations all around the world at the moment, um, most notably in Australia in recent times, where there's some interesting stuff happening um, in terms of the defence budget there. Uh, there are electricity data out of Ireland today that I'd just like to throw out there and a bit of a discussion. Uh, bond markets, we dealt exclusively and extensively, I think, with bond markets in our last podcast. Still a lot of action there. It hasn't gone away. Um, there's an interest rate story out of Ireland with the Minister of Finance, Michael McGrath, pressurising the banks to pass on higher deposit rates to savers in the Irish banking system. That's something we highlighted over a month ago, um, and it's now sort of gone mainstream here. And it's also an important week, or at least weekend, coming up for global central banking and for interest rates because the annual symposium of central bankers takes place in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Always some interesting stuff out of that. Um, I thought last year's meeting in Jackson Hole was one of the more interesting ones that we've seen in recent years because a number of key central bankers came out and basically said um, inflation is becoming a problem. It's becoming embedded. We will do whatever it takes to try and bring inflation back under control. If that means forcing unemployment higher, if that means causing recession across the global economy, that is a price worth paying for getting inflation under control. So that was kind of significant. I think it did lay the groundwork for everything central bankers have done globally since then. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out this weekend. Starting with the article on housing in the Financial Times today, 
Um, and I suppose having read it, there's one conclusion I would come to amongst many, I guess, and that is that um, the Irish housing problem, as in a serious rental crisis, as in a home ownership affordability crisis, that Ireland is not unique. It's a pretty universal global story at the moment, as we've often discussed and stated. Yes, Jim. The article's title, I think, says it all in a way. And it is Extreme Renting, How Rising Rates Turned the Screws on Tenants Across Europe. It's great. It's a long read. It's a great read and goes through those arguments you've just neatly summarized there and talks about where the hot spots are. Um, it's not everywhere. There are uh, some uh, places that are worse than others, but it is a pretty universal problem. Uh, Portugal's one of the worst markets, actually, in terms of the rents being paid in capitals, capital cities. Uh, one of the interesting uh, features of this long read article in the FT, and I suspect it's going to be behind a paywall, is the way in which a lot of the charts are interactive, that you can customize them for your own use and you can see your own country or your own interests in various ways. The story is one, as, as you say, that everybody says it's an issue about supply. So we start to go through the list of usual suspects about why we have a housing crisis. And I think that it's a question of both supply and demand. You and I have talked about this a lot, and I think we've ended up via a circuitous route in, in more or less the same place, that there, there is a list of things that have caused the problem, both supply and demand. So both lack of building, lack of construction, uh, relative to demand, uh, an increase in demand for all sorts of reasons, not least up until recently, low interest rates, low mortgage rates, boosted demand beyond anything that supply could meet. That created its own problems. Then we have the rise in interest rates, which has killed demand actually for purchasing uh, across Europe. Uh, prices are suffering. And so therefore, again, nothing's getting built because nobody's demanding the, the, to buy houses because people can't afford it. The article goes into specific examples about how people across Europe are switching from being potential purchasers, uh, they would prefer to be purchasers, into, into being renters. And of course, with the sudden influx into the rental market of people who would otherwise have been buying, guess what's happened to rents? Uh, they are shooting up everywhere. One of the interesting charts that caught my eye was the one actually on mortgage rates across Europe. And you can see the chart for Ireland. I suspect you know the one I'm talking about, Jim, which is for a few years up until very recently, Ireland had mortgage rates, but above the European average. And now they are at the, the European average. On mortgage rates, the old story about whether or not it was more or less expensive to get a mortgage in Ireland relative to the rest of Europe, that appears to have gone away. Um, but the issue now, of course, is when it comes to uh, interest rates and mortgage rates, all those sorts of things. It's the rate that um, is being paid to the bank's depositors in Ireland and indeed elsewhere. But this article does make the point that we have been making for some time, which is that we do have an international problem, not just a domestic problem. It's across the board. Yeah, we see in capital cities like London, Paris, Ber Berlin, Lisbon, uh, rents are now at the highest level ever recorded. And that kind of says it all. Dublin wasn't mentioned, but it's, it's the same situation here, obviously. The article talks about people being forced to live in vans and developing internet plugins to help 
try and snap up desirable homes as soon as they are advertised on the market. Um, another sign of desperation. And of course, here in Ireland over the next few weeks, it will be highlighted again because the college students will be returning over the coming weeks. And that just exacerbates the demand for rental properties at this time of year and just makes a bad situation even worse. So uh, it's it, it should be no consolation, I suppose, that What's happening here in Ireland isn't unique. It is a pretty universal story at a global level. There's no doubt about that. One of the things that has obviously been driving the demand for rental is the fact that with interest rates rising, the home ownership or buying your house has been undermined. There are pretty stringent income requirements now in many mortgage markets and a need for larger deposits. So all of these factors are contributing to making buying a house um, unfeasible and hence people are being pushed into the rental market and unfortunately uh, the supply of rental properties has not kept up with demand and prices are rising. It's not rocket science and um, it's amazing that it takes so long for policymakers to actually grasp the nettle here and do the things that need to be done to get supply back on stream as quickly as possible. We've often said it, it is not rocket science. It does require brave policymaking and brave political decisions in areas like planning and so on. Uh, but there is a total failure of, in many political systems clearly, to actually grasp that nettle. So the problem is just going to get worse. And um, of course, for those capital cities, it does undermine and damage their competitiveness as a place where people want to come and live, visit, work, whatever, or invest indeed, whatever. A challenging situation. Cover a couple of things before we get on to a more extensive discussion on China. Um, you know, you mentioned what was happening, Irish mortgage rates, and Michael McGrath, the Minister of Finance, has come out again in recent days saying that he expects to see the banks raise interest rates for depositors. And in an effort to try and encourage that, he is about to sanction some increase in the interest rates paid on the state-backed savings schemes. And I think the, the difference here is that when the state increases those interest rates on state savings, uh, that is taxpayers' money that it's basically being paid for. Whereas for us ordinary depositors who have money in the banking system, um, it's the banks that are actually screwing us. So there is a significant difference there. And um, it so is... are we basically screwing ourselves by putting state savings rates up? Is that your message there, Jim? And uh, no, it's not. I mean, I'm 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 glad to see state savings rates going up because it might create some element of competition for a banking sector that is not exactly characterised by um, competition. No, no, I'm not. I'm certainly not criticising it one iota. But there there is a subtle difference between state savings rates going up and bank deposit rates going up it's coming from two different pots of money but but the element of competition that it does introduce in the market is important so i hope we see those state savings rates go up and hopefully that will force the banks to actually um re respond on the interest rate front but it is um interesting and unusual i guess to see a senior political figure getting involved in this whole debate but that just demonstrates it's it's become a populist issue and politicians always respond to those populist issues. Um, another 
thing that I'd like to briefly mention was today we got the publication of producer price inflation in Ireland. We're, we're seeing the price of most building materials coming down again. But the one that, and indeed wholesale food prices, but the one that grabbed me was in the year to July, the wholesale price of electricity declined by 64%, okay, year on year. Um, I then looked at the latest consumer price index and the consumer price for electricity has increased by 31.8% over the same period. So we're seeing this dramatic downward pressure on wholesale electricity prices reflecting global developments on energy markets. But yet the Irish consumer continues to pay very, very high price for electricity. The utility providers will come back and say that, you know, they've hedged, they've bought forward. And until those hedges run their course, they won't be able to pass on significant rate cuts. They've been saying that for a long time. And we have discussed this, I know, many times, Chris, but I remember saying a long time ago that once global energy costs and wholesale electricity prices start to rise, those increases were passed on immediately to the consumer. Uh, but on the way down, um, it's a significantly different story. But uh, I, I think it's one that attention needs to be focused on because there's definitely an element of the Irish consumer, again, being taken for a ride by the utility companies, in my view. I suppose the way to test that would be to look at your electricity prices, like those rental and other costs that we were talking about earlier on in a pan-European context. And if you're paying more than the European average for electricity, I suspect that will be at least one piece of evidence to back up your, your suspicion that Irish consumers are yet again getting screwed. So, Chris, moving on to the Chinese situation, there's so many aspects to China that we could discuss. There was a story over the weekend which says a lot about the growing military threat being posed by China. Um, whether it's real or perceived, um, it is having an impact. Um, the Australian government has just announced that it's announced that it's going to devote $1.7 billion to long-range defense systems, particularly Tomahawk cruise missiles. And the justification for this significant expenditure on defense is to bolster the defense capability um, in the face of the threat of China. So militarily, the impact of China is really starting to grow. Um, and Taiwan has been the focus, but all, all of these things are connected anyway. But uh, th th there is a serious military threat here. And it's, it's interesting to see countries like Australia um, starting to react to that. But the economic story coming out of China um, continues to deteriorate. There was an article by Gideon Rackman in the Financial Times who was basically talking about the significant problems that China is now facing from um, significant levels of private sector debt, from falling property prices, and indeed from very high levels of youth unemployment. Uh, but Rackman's conclusion basically is that there is a more fundamental problem for China um, and that is the aging of the population, uh, which, you know, is is increasing dramatically. And last year, the Chinese announced the first decline in its population 
for something like 60 years. And Gideon Rackman refers to this as the Japanification of China. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yeah, he's not the first to use that Japan analogy. And uh, Japanification has been investigated and talked about and written about by all sorts of different people. JP Morgan, for example, got a big research piece out asking that very question. And they've concluded that on balance, although the risks are there, it won't follow Japan. I think that that is broadly right, because one of the things that I'm pretty sure China will do is what it's always done, at least for the last 30 years, is do whatever it does next in its own way. And that there isn't a role model for them to follow because of the way in which they do things. Uh, Every time I've looked at China for decades now, I found it one of the most interesting, fascinating places to to do research, to visit, to think about. But those researches, those visits always end up in the same place, which is a conclusion essentially amounting to, I haven't got a clue what's going on there and I have no idea what's going to happen next. I know of a huge global asset manager, Los Angeles-based, that once sent out a team of economists to China to go and live there for, I think, a year or certainly a long period of time in order to try and figure out what was going on, because China is very important from a whole host of geopolitical and market perspectives. And the economists, this team, came back to Los Angeles, met with the management that had paid for them to go and live in China, and the management sat them down and said, well, what do you think? And these economists looked at their managers and said, we don't know, no idea. It's, uh, it's pretty difficult historically, I think, to have figured anything out. But China's going through one of those phases for the reasons that you've just outlined there, where it is really, really fascinating. Uh, there's so much going on politically, socially and economically, starting with the financial markets. China over the last few days has disappointed the financial markets with a barely perceptible easing of monetary policy. We've talked about the Federal Reserve raising interest rates by 75 basis points ago uh, over the last while. That's three quarters of one percentage point. The People's Bank of China last week shaved its interest rate by 10 basis points, uh, a move that you'd you'd need a magnifying glass to see. This is really interesting because the Chinese economy is in trouble. They have a property bust. They have a proper property crash going on. It's something we've worried about for quite some time. It's got shades of the financial crisis of uh, our own of 15 years ago that started in property. Um, Will they be able to stop this property market crash? Yeah, of course they could if they chose to. They could do all sorts of things. They could do all sorts of things that we couldn't do back then. 
Will they do them? I don't know. Because one of the things that when you look at China uh, and their policies that they pursue, both monetary and fiscal, they seem to do the opposite of what everybody in the West always does, which is one of the reasons why we can never figure it out. But they should be easing policy because of what's been happening to their economy via the crashing property market. And in fact, real interest rates are going up in China because inflation is coming down faster than interest rates are coming down. And so that means that monetary conditions in China at a time of a property market crisis are actually tightening, which is not the way things are supposed to happen. And that, if anything, I think could make the property crash worse. How worrying is this? Well, for us in the developed world, it's not as worrying as it is for the Chinese themselves. Because China, as you said, Jim, it has the most rapidly aging population in the world. There is no country that is aging faster. But it seems that Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, has relegated the, uh, the Chinese economy to third place. This is a point that Rackman makes in his article that you referenced earlier, that national security, all that militarization, that buildup of arms, buildup of uh, all the different armed forces, is taking priority. Uh, domestic control of the people, the surveillance state, the dominance of the Chinese Communist Party in China is also a priority. And the economy is coming a a long way third. They've got the highest uh, youth unemployment rate uh, of many countries. It's about 21% in the major cities. And the Chinese response, anybody's response to high unemployment historically is always to stimulate your economy. The Chinese response this time in the last few days has been to abolish publication of the statistics so that we will no longer know what uh, the uh, Chinese unemployment rate for young people is going to be. So there's a really interesting change going on. The economy is being relegated to third place by the the Chinese. Um, There's been a huge fall in Chinese trade. Both their exports and the imports have fallen off a cliff. And as a result of all of that, they've got deflation. We've got an inflation problem here in the West, Jim, and they've got deflation. So it's one of the world's most unequal countries from, a, from an inequality perspective. It is, it is not in a good place. The government is fundamentally Leninist in its approach to economic policy in that it has emphasized for decades now supply, not demand. And so therefore, um, if you've focused on supply, you have these huge oversupplies Um, in things like coal and steel, the old-fashioned stuff, which we all know about. Chinese produce tons and gazillions of tons of this kind of stuff. But what people don't generally realize is just how much stuff they produce overall. In things like renewables, electronic vehicles, EVs, there are huge parks of unused electronic vehicles in China um, just sitting there rotting. There's too much debt in China, especially for local government and state non state enterprises, property developers. And so commentators that I respect, like George Magnus, you remember that name, he thinks the property has passed the tipping point, it's in a crash and faces years of contraction and falling prices. And that comes after years where the property market contributed to growth in the Chinese economy. So we've, it's flipped there. So China's inevitable overtaking of the US, which we've talked about for years, isn't going to happen, Jim. Not no, going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. Absolutely not. The You mentioned the youth unemployment piece and the response from Xi Jinping was eat bitterness. That was his, his advice to young people, as your parents and their parents did in the past. And I suppose this is the, the real challenge because 
because of what happened in 1919 and again in 1989 with sort of student and youth protests created major political instability. Um, and that has to be the big fear now because, you know, one of the things that was essential in China over recent decades was to make sure that the economy continued to develop, that more and more people continue to be pulled out of poverty because having a huge segment of a huge population living below the poverty line is potentially a recipe for serious social unrest. I think that's always been a key consideration for the Chinese authorities, uh, but it was very domestically focused, whereas now the threat, the military threat is much more externally focused. And, you know, I mentioned what's happening in Australia, but when in the United States you have a congressional committee with specific responsibility for looking at the Chinese Communist Party, um, it just demonstrates how significant China is now becoming in this very, very uncertain, very dangerous global geopolitical stratosphere or atmosphere. So it's uh, it's it, it's it, it is a big story, and I, I suppose the big challenge now for Xi Jinping, and I and I guess this is why he's becoming increasingly authoritarian, is to try and prevent this economic meltdown from feeding into domestic political uncertainty because um, the, the younger generation has had a taste of what life can be like. That's now in danger of being taken away again. And um, you just wonder how that will be contained by the Chinese authorities. And of course, the application of sort of conventional analysis to this is not appropriate because in a centrally planned economy that is incredibly and becoming more authoritarian, the rules, the normal rules of engagement do not apply. It's definitely going to be a story that's going to dominate for years to come. Yeah, I think that it's going to be a much bigger story going forward than it has in the past. The Chinese story has been a huge part of what's been happening in the West since the 1980s, actually, and certainly since China joined the World Trade Organization. You can trace links between China's accession to the world trading system and things like the, the rise of Brexit, the rise of Donald Trump, uh, the, all these sorts of linkages are present and will continue to be present, but in, but in different ways. China's economic growth has financed something, for example, called the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been China's attempts to buy influence, to buy uh, economic connections, to buy economic growth, and also to have access to raw materials, as well as political influence in countries like Africa. Um, Belt and Road financing peaked actually six years ago. They've not had the money to spend on it. And this is a particular point about a more general argument that in order to achieve these national security and other objectives that they've got, it's all very well relegating the economy to third or fourth place, but it's the economy that provides the money to do what it is that you need and want to do. So I think that this creates a tension. Uh, it, it creates contradictions within what they're going to do, and it sows the seeds for potential chaos. I think it means China is going to decline in relative importance. I think it means that China could be chaotic. And that strikes me as being in a very Chinese way. I'm not saying it's exactly the same as what's happened to Russia over the last half century, but it is very similar to the conditions that give rise to Vladimir Putin, is that a declining national situation plus chaos as a result of all sorts of things going on that we've just described, is that you acquire a leadership or that you risk your leadership acquiring an interest in global chaos, just as Putin has done. 
So I think summarizing all of that, and we could talk about it for hours, we won't, I'll shut up now. But my conclusion, my personal conclusion is that um, in the short term, China's crashing property market and economic weakness is actually going to be good economically for the West because it's going to give us a, a disinflation impulse and that uh, inflation will be lower than it otherwise would have been here. It will help our fight against inflation. Um, that could change if China does policy stimulus and starts to try and get its economy going again. That conclusion will change. But for now, that's the conclusion I draw. But over the long term, uh, I think that instability in China is a real worry. And I think the, the Putinization of Xi Jinping um, would leave me very worried if I'm sitting in Taiwan. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about that. From a global economic perspective, I think it's important to remember as well that during the 2008-9 global financial crisis, um, as you know, the Western world particularly went into serious decline, um, the global growth numbers actually didn't look that bad in aggregate. And that was because China was the grower of default at that time. Uh, but this time round, and indeed China saved the world economy from a much worse fate at that stage. Uh, but I think China has regressed significantly since then as a player in the global economy. And this time round, um, it's not going to be providing that sort of bailout for the rest of the world. But as you say, it is good for the rest in the sense that it does um, will give rise to disinflationary impulses. Um, Chris, I'd just like to wrap on what's happening on bond markets. Um, we discussed it in our last podcast quite extensively, but uh, Japanese 10-year yields yesterday went to a nine-year high. US 10-year yields went to a 16-year high. And the inflation-linked bonds in the state, the so-called TIPS, uh, the 10 years touching 2% at the moment. So what all that... It's reflecting lots of things that we discussed, but um, it is primarily saying that inflation is going to remain elevated for the foreseeable future and that monetary policy is going to remain tight for the foreseeable future. So uh, that's an ongoing story that uh, could have significant ramifications, as we discussed. And my final point would be that on Thursday this week, Donald Trump will be surrendering himself to the authorities in Georgia on charges that include racketeering. You couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up, Jim. Good to talk and look forward to our next conversation. Super, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.